offices. They marched on Downing Street, angry at plans to close hundreds of ticket offices at railway stations across England. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart, an author and journalist who has specialised in transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we aim to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews across the world of transport. And this time we're back rather sooner than usual to bring our listeners up to date with two very important stories. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker. So what's happening, Mark? Hello, Christian, and hello to our listeners. Yes, we have two very interesting transport stories for this episode. Breaking news from both sides of the Atlantic. So first of all, we'll be looking at the decision to cancel the proposed mass closure of railway station booking offices in England. And then we'll be examining the withdrawal of all of the cruise driverless vehicles across the United States of America, which hitherto have been deployed in a number of US cities. Christian, let's bring everybody up to date with the English railway booking office stories. Well, this is an extraordinary episode, Mark. Uh, I mean, it's just the U-turn to beat all U-turns. So essentially, all the proposals to close something like 960 ticket offices in stations across the country have just been abandoned. And what's more, they're not even being kicked into touch. They've actually been uh, removed for good. So let's go back a little bit in this story and where it started. And you know, there's a lot of kind of discussion within the industry about, you know, where did this come from? Whose idea was this? And I think I've got to the bottom of this at last, which is that the train operating companies were being asked to save a lot of money. And to avoid making cuts to their services, they said, oh, well, we can save money by closing the ticket offices. Um, but actually, uh, when they went to the government, they said, well, we could close a lot of ticket offices, but we'll tell you what, we want half the money that's saved from this. And apparently, the Department for Transport didn't like the idea of sharing the uh, gains or for the cuts, uh, that the money that would have been saved. But they did say to the train operator, oh, well, that's quite a good idea. Why don't you go ahead and work up the uh, idea? And of course, that explains why the idea came from every single train operating company. So the, the ministers were busily denying that they had anything to do with this. But of course, they had things to do with it, because it would have been a bit of a coincidence if some 20 different train operating companies would all come up with the same idea to cut booking offices at the same time if they hadn't been asked to do that by government. So that was a completely ridiculous. There's so much obfuscation about this, and certainly nobody wants to own the story now. But even then, nobody really wanted to own it. Anyway, so they came up uh, with this plan, very hastily kind of drawn together uh, in the summer, they had to kind of put these proposals uh, uh, out within about a month. And there was a great variety of disparity between them. I mean, some like Avanti uh, basically cut even mainline stations they wanted to get, to get rid of, you know, the, the booking office at Euston and Manchester Piccadilly and Birmingham New Street, for Christ's sake, you know, completely bonkers. Whereas others, particularly those that were run by uh, the uh, 
the the operator of last resort, which are, so they're essentially run by the Department for Transport. They kind of had rather more modest proposals, but it was kind of all over the place. And I think it's worth pointing out that it it was a peculiarly English proposal, wasn't it, Christian? In that, despite some earlier hints, the Scottish government decided not to go down this path there. And also the Welsh government opted out when it came to the uh, the rail network controlled by uh, Transport for Wales. And even within England, there were some locally controlled parts of the network. Notably Liverpool. In yes, Liverpool, uh, Liverpool City region, and, and yeah. the T- Transport for London controlled services weren't, weren't actually adopting this proposal. So it was very much the those parts of the rail network that were controlled by the UK Department for Transport in England were the ones affected by this. Uh, that's right. Um, but even so, there was no unity of purpose here. I mean, you know, I've, I've written extensively about it and, and uh, so have lots of other people. And there's a real element of back of the envelope stuff, you know, uh, that this was, they were, they were asked to do this very quickly. Uh, some of them did uh, a, a something of a coherent job, not really. Others kind of really just wrote down some names of stations and kind of passed them on. And of course, just as an aside, there is an issue here. I mean, it, it might be that there are some booking offices that maybe don't have very many people uh, uh, using them, and they might be better with staff in front of the glass, as the expression goes. Uh, and there might be others which are absolutely providing a, a, a vital service and, and maybe they should be enhanced. But there was no attempt to kind of look at this comprehensively. All the government came up with, uh, and they were, you know, the ministers were definitely supporting this wholeheartedly. They were saying, well, there's only 12% of uh, tickets are now sold through uh, ticket offices and therefore uh, they're now redundant. But when you actually look at that, 12% of, you know, one and a half billion or something, uh, you know, comes up at, you know, something like 180, 200,000 a year. And that's kind of, you know, uh, an awful lot of tickets every day are sold through in, in this way. So, uh, and also, of course, season tickets aren't and, and various advanced tickets aren't. So uh, the ones that are bought through uh, ticket office tend to be the more complicated ones. I mean, I have a particular issue because, you know, I have a freedom pass. And, and so therefore, when I'm leaving a station in London, I can get uh, for free up to the end of zone six. And so I end up kind of having to buy tickets from places like Hadley Wood or, uh, or, or Surbiton or whatever. And uh, that saves me quite a lot of money, but you can't get those out of machines. So, so it, that's it, a it, peculiarly London-wide uh, travel system for people of a certain age, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, so we're privileged. We have to admit that we are privileged. And I know you don't live in London, uh, Mark, and so you're very envious of it. <laughs> but, uh, yes, uh, we get that. But there's also all sorts of other complexities of of. Uh, uh, of, of the ticketing system and of course there's people with disabilities there's uh, people with you know some learning difficulties or whatever or just people who find it quite alienating to go and buy uh, a ticket from a machine so can we for the for the benefit of listeners particularly those outside of england and even outside of the uk could we just explain what the convoluted process of consultation was on these proposed closures and how how it played out well, this again was pretty extraordinary because in the end of their day, there was three quarters of a million responses to consultation. And this was undertaken by an organisation called 
transport focus, which has gone under various names in the past. Passenger focus uh, was its uh, previous incarnation. And it's actually the sort of official watchdog, uh, paid for, by the way, by the Department for Transport. But at sort of one remove, it kind of makes comments on uh, issues in the rail industry. It deals with uh, sort of high-level complaints that haven't been dealt with properly and uh, and it's always consulted over kind of major changes. Um, but poor old transport focus really isn't geared up to dealing with 750,000 responses and dealing with such a widespread consultation, which was that the, the changes were being enacted through the, the, the ticket settlement uh, plan, which is you know, an arcane piece of uh, legislation that governs much to do with the railways. And it wasn't really fit for purpose. And I do remember talking to Transport Focus and they're saying, you know, we're pretty overwhelmed by this. And it wasn't really uh, what our organisation was set out to do. Because that's really only designed, isn't it, for the occasional closure or modification of a booking office, opening hours, at maybe one or two locations on the network, Absolutely, not for yes. a comprehensive shutdown. Yes, yes. You know, a, a train operator might want to, you know, shut half a dozen kind of of its suburban station ticket on, or even just change the hours of it. They still have to go through sure. this organisation. They were not geared up to deal with nearly a thousand kind of uh, potential uh, closures. But I must say, they've done a fantastic uh, uh, job, and and they did have to actually. Uh, issue a decision on every single station under consideration. So they had to go through uh, each of the 20 or so train operating uh, company proposals uh, with a fine tooth comb. Uh, but actually, in the, in the end, at the end of the day, they somewhat kind of uh, got away with it by simply saying, look, we've looked at all these proposals in detail and some of them, you know, have uh, been kind of okay they put forward some some reasonable ideas and so, and so on but at the end of the day none of these pass the threshold of ensuring they don't really badly affect uh passengers and so we're dismissing all of them just, we're banning just hold, all that, of them. hold that thought not one single proposal met the threshold for approval that's right i mean we're laughing at it. it is kind of ridiculous that it ever got to to this and and it took uh, I mean, I think it took some courage on the part of, of Anthony Smith, who's the boss of uh, Transport Focus, who's actually leaving his job after nearly 20 years in post. And has uh, been interviewed on a previous episode of this podcast. And, and well. he's been on this uh, podcast previously and talked to us. And I must say, it, it took some, uh, uh, I think, some courage to stand up to the government and say, no, this is actually just wrong. And this is a bad at what he's standing up to both the government and the uh train operators company and saying no look none of these ideas pass the threshold of, of you know not badly affecting kind of local people uh none of them are acceptable uh, and we're chucking them out and then of course now the interesting thing is the reaction of the department of transport now they had to make the final decision so the transport focus would have only recommended say a closure here a closure there or an opening there or whatever and then every single decision would have then gone to ministers who would have had to approve uh, any closures. Uh, but they've completely copped out of the whole thing. After kind of going on about what a good idea this was, Rishi Sunak, the uh, prime minister, actually said at one point uh, that 
he thought that, you know, closing booking offices was the, and he's always got this expression, the right thing to do. It's one of his favourite expressions. Um, and suddenly, obviously, it's not the right thing to do because uh, Mark Harper, the transport secretary, immediately issued a statement saying uh, that we don't think that these uh, proposals ever passed the threshold that they were supposed to for closure. And uh, we don't even want to hear from train operators about these proposals ever again, which is somewhat extraordinary, isn't it, Mark, after they were kind of saying, oh, this is the best thing since Hovis. Well, it's a bit like the story of the uh, that was set up by the aforementioned Prime Minister, that there was a proposal to introduce seven different kinds of uh, rubbish bins in uh, British homes, and he was moving to stop this terrible proposal being implemented. Yet again, the government has come up with something which it's then swept away uh, as a as a as and and trying to demonstrate some kind of public benefit from this. But it's more duplicitous in a way, Mark, because they endorse this suggestion. Uh, you know, even if they didn't originally come up with it, they certainly supported it. They spoke at meetings about what a good idea was it. And as I said, the PM actually endorsed it. And then they kind of leave the train operators in limbo uh, by uh, basically dissing it and then really denying it that it was anything ever to do with me, Gov. Um, and I mean, this is really not a serious way to, to run the government. And of course, there's still problems ahead here, Mark, because the train operators are still supposed to be making uh, 10 or 15% cuts uh, uh, over each year to their to their uh, budgets. Um, and this was one way they were going to save money without kind of cutting back on services. And now it seems they can't do this, um, but they've been given no guidance as to you know, how they're supposed to fit into the budgets that they've been set by the Department of Transport. And uh, they're kind of seething at having been not only uh, had their plans kind of scrapped, but also then getting blamed for the whole process, which really was you know, in the hands of ministers. And what I think is probably unforgivable in this context is the huge amount of management time, effort, energy, that will have been diverted into this, into bringing forward these proposals, running the consultations, um, which could have been directed towards actually growing the patronage and, and revenue of Britain's railways, which is something that desperately needs to happen. Uh, absolutely. And the, the effect on staff we're on, I mean, I've even heard of you know people who've uh, you know left the industry because they thought, well, we haven't got a future here. And if you know, they've got a, another local job or something, they would say, oh, well, I would take this local job, you know, and uh, uh, because clearly they're going to try and get rid of us. And, and there was all the way through this kind of hidden thing that it was going to result in fewer staff. And, and you know, the, the, the government sort of denied that this was the intention. But, but clearly there was a plan that, you know, some of these staff would not be brought in front of the glass. They'd be chucked out altogether and not have a job. So uh, the whole episode just reeks of everything that is wrong with the, with the way the railways have been run, with ministerial interference, with the fact that there is nobody really representing uh, the railways. There's no kind of, you know, British rail type body that, you know, would have actually being able to throw back these sort of proposals back at ministers and say, we're not going to do this. We're not playing this game. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not somewhere we're going, which happened with British Rail 
uh, older listeners might remember the Serpil report, which was actually uh, going to cut back the railway to some 1,600 miles. And basically, uh, the British Rail managed to get rid of that by uh, leaking a copy of it, of the worst kind of uh, scenario in the in the uh, document. And basically, that killed it stone dead. That would have happened with this as well, if it had been suggested in the days of, of British Rail. We might call this special episode of Calling All Stations U-Turn if you want to, because as well as the U-Turn on booking offices in England's railways, there's been a major U-Turn with the deployment of driverless vehicles in the United States. And I know, Christian, this is a subject dear to your heart. Uh, Absolutely. I've been following this uh, story about driverless cars for about uh, nearly 10 years now. And I even wrote a little book called Driverless Cars on a Road uh, to Nowhere, still available. And uh, what the basic thesis of the book was that this is a technology that is just a bit too far, that it's not manageable. uh, It's not going to happen anytime soon. It's absorbing vast amounts of money um, and people don't really want it. There's no great desire to have driverless cars. Now, In the intervening uh, few years, five or six years since I wrote the book, uh, there has been some progress. And most notably, uh, in a few American cities, notably Phoenix and San Francisco and and just very recently Los Angeles, uh, there have been the introduction of uh, really generally uh, robo-taxis. In other words, with no operator there at all to... uh, deal with uh, an emergency. There was a long period where they had driverless cars which drove themselves, but there was a kind of operator just sitting there in case uh, something went wrong. And indeed, uh, there was actually a death in those circumstances um, about three, four years ago when uh, a woman who pushing a bicycle was run over by one of these uh, vehicles, despite the fact that it had an operator, but it was operating under uh, the sort of driverless uh, robot uh, uh, techniques and uh, this woman was killed because the, the operator wasn't paying attention she was watching a video and uh, this poor woman uh, rather confused the computer by she was pushing a bike and somehow the computer couldn't deal with whether it was a, a, a bike on its own with no passenger or whatever and and it didn't stop for her and that actually put pay to uber uber had uh was had been desperate to have these robo taxis, thinking that it would be able to operate uh, its fleet of vehicles much more cheaply if there weren't drivers. Although it never quite got around the problem of if they weren't going to have drivers, they weren't going to have any owners, and they'd have to buy the whole fleet. But anyway, they never got around that. But they abandoned their whole interest in robo taxis, and really, only two major players are left. Um, Apple uh, seemed to have pulled out as well, or not. Uh, there's certainly no news about what they're doing. And the two major players are Cruise, which is owned by General Motors, uh, and Waymo, which is owned by Alphabet, which, of course, is, is Google. And Cruise have uh, been deploying robotaxis in San Francisco, which is not an easy place to do it in for some uh, two or three years, actually. And they've actually taken their drivers out. There's some fuss locally about the fact that these things sometimes get stuck or they sometimes just stop for no good reason and so on. But there haven't been any major incidents. have been odd incidents until last week. And this uh, incident has is basically the one that has put pay to their operations 
in the United States for a while. And what happened was that a woman was crossing the road, got hit by a normal human-driven car, and she got knocked into the path of a driverless car. Uh, but the driverless car, apparently, uh, which owned by Cruz, was uh, under the, under the uh, its operating kind of system. When something like this happened, it's supposed to pull over to the side, uh, away from uh, the traffic, and that was the automatic response that was set. And unfortunately, because she'd fallen in front of this car and was somewhat hidden from it, it ran her over as well as uh, she had been hit by the previous car, and she suffered, you know, very serious injuries because uh, of this second uh, running over. And Cruz at first kind of tried to say, oh, well, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't very important. It, it was very exceptional and so on. But actually, as the accident was more investigated more fully, uh, the uh, authorities took a great interest. And then Cruz said, oh, well, we're not going to run any driverless cars in San Francisco. And then actually, after a couple more days, it pulled out completely. Um, and as you suggest, did a U-turn, really. And what's interesting there is that when I wrote my book a, a, a few years ago, I always said that once you had accidents, this whole technology was going to be put into question. And indeed, as I mentioned, Uber already has had to pull out because uh, one of its vehicles killed somebody. And now Cruise has you know, seriously injured somebody because of the protocols that its car was supposed to follow and had been written into uh, the computer program, the software that uh, it operates by. And this raises very big questions about you know the whole future of this massive industry, leaving really only Waymo, which is technically above uh, anybody else, ahead of anybody else in the game. But Waymo is panicking as well because it's it's gone into Los Angeles with the idea that it wants to start making money from this. You know, nobody's made any money from this apart from a few taxi fares. Um, and uh, unless it starts making money from this soon, I think that the whole dream of driverless cars, which is really kind of being uh, a fantasy within uh, the tech industry more than the car industry uh, for the past 10, 15 years, might finally uh, be ended. Uh, just at a time when actually our government has spent some 250 million pounds on supporting various drivers' well, cars. That's a question that's I wanted. Another story. I wanted to put that question to uh -huh. you, Christian, because of course, presumably, all of this research and development has been, to some degree, supported by taxpayers' money in the form of grants and tax breaks for the companies that have been developing this tech, not only in the UK but in other industrialised nations. Absolutely, the EU has got a big fund for. Uh, uh, driverless car uh, technology. Uh, America President Obama shows how how far back in, had a fund of around ten billion dollars uh, to support these uh, ten billion uh, dollars. Yes, ten billion dollars. Yes, I mean serious money. So we've put in some two hundred and fifty million pounds, which shows that I mean it's it just it's peanuts compared to what they've uh, put in. It's incredibly expensive business, Mark, because you have to. You have to develop all this software. Then you have to have endless, endless testing of these uh, vehicles. Um, you know, very detail, very detailed way, and and you have to 
develop software for every eventuality, you know, you, and, and that's clearly what hasn't happened. It's very difficult to do that. You know, the, the classic example is, you know, what about a camel down Main Street? You know, will you oh. recognize what a camel is? Yeah, no, and I and if I take a, a cab to the station here in Peterborough, as I occasionally do, I'm, I'm conscious uh, in a way of the countless decisions that are being taken by the cab driver and the other road users and pedestrians, perhaps hundreds or even thousands of decisions just on that short journey between that, my home that's and right. the station. And I think, I think they, the, the tech companies have underestimated their skills. They say one of the you know one of the kind of uh, factors they say would be uh, an advantage for driverless cars is that they'll be safer but in fact we are pretty good at driving you know people you know yes of course there's far too many people get killed or whatever but actually we make these thousands of decisions can it even just you know in a 5 minute drive you'll make literally dozens of 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 absolutely crucial decisions and We'll, uh, I always say this, uh, you know, and I said this to the select committee when I gave evidence, you know, close your eyes and then open them again. And you'll instantly see, and I'm looking out of a window here, you know, I'll see the tree, I'll see a couple of cars parked, I'll see some leaves on the ground, I'll see the signs on the road and so on. And computers are just not, they have to process all that and immediately analyze which of these things might pose a threat, you know, to, to, to the car. Is that person standing on the side walk kind of going to to step out? You know, uh, what what happens if a ball rolls? Does that mean a kid's going to chase up and what? So and all these zillions of decisions, and essentially they haven't managed to get the computers trained uh, sufficiently. And this incident, I think, will might well spell uh, the beginning of the end of this whole uh, process, which has literally cost not just a ten billion of government money in the US, but like literally tens of billions of dollars in development. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, I think the fascinating link between these two stories is that tech can't do everything. Because why do people want ticket offices to be staffed by human beings? It's because their needs are quite complex, because uh, actually the existing uh, ticket vending machines are just not good enough. They don't kind of offer every alternative. They don't consider all sorts of uh, types of ticket that people might want to buy. And also people like the human touch. And the same actually goes for cars, actually. You know, I mean, when I take a taxi, I quite like the fact there's somebody there driving the taxi. I don't really want to be driven about by some strange machine that may or may not be making mistakes and uh, there's, you know, nobody there if it, say, broke down on a road that I didn't know and, and ran out of electricity or whatever. Um, and again, it's it's comforting to have uh, somebody there. And also, those people are very skilled, you know, as you suggest, that when, when you, you're driving a taxi, it's a very skilled thing to do. And we're not quite sure that the machines are up to it. So, there's a wonderful link between these two stories, which is the limits of uh, technology and the fact that also there, there's two amazing U-turns there. You know, suddenly, uh, you know, we're not going to get any ticket office closures and crews have suddenly not got any cars on the road without drivers.
Calling All Stations, the Transport Podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamas Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, do please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod.